This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and in today's episode we're going to be hearing from Jim Al-Khalili, broadcaster on radio and TV, author of many wonderful popular physics books and of course his debut novel, Sunfall, the Distinguished Chair in Theoretical Physics at the University of Surrey and Vice President of Humanists UK. Jim's new television series is on Magellan TV and is called Jim Al-Khalili's Guide to Life, the Universe and Everything. And I began by asking Jim what we can expect to see when we watch this new programme on Magellan TV. In a sense that there are clips and ideas from other programmes I've made in the past uh, but it's more than a repackaging, you know. It, it, there's really the, some of the TV documentaries I've made for the BBC go back ten years or more, and you know the theoretical physics certainly has moved forward a little bit since then. Not not huge strides, but we've learnt a bit more. So it's really a sort of a state of our current understanding of the nature of the universe, nature of reality. You know, it's sort of very sort of foundational questions. The everything in the title, I can say, you know, refers to you know how far we are from a theory of everything. We're certainly trying to understand the universe. The life bit actually does come in strongly because that is part of my own research interest at the moment, which is studying the the, the influence of quantum mechanics in in biological systems. So it really is sort of my take, my guide on where we are at in terms of our understanding of the world around us. So have you done? new recording for it at all oh yes oh and there's a lot of a lot of new material um uh absolutely it's, it's, it's more than just clips from old documentaries with with me providing the links in between mm-hmm. uh there's a, a a lot of new and a lot of stuff that uh you know in hindsight you know i should have talked about it before there's other stuff that's that's we're only really coming to a better understanding of now so yeah I, it was less work than making a whole new brand new two-hour film but a lot more than just a day of, uh, yeah. of providing sort of links and voiceover. Fair enough. But I, so, are you quite involved in the in that kind of narrative of it? How you put the narrative together in the in the show? Yes, I mean very much. So. I mean, to a large extent, the the the, the producer director who was working on it uh, and I between us, we said, "Well, look, this is the story we want to tell. This is how we can explain such and that. Oh, we can use that particular." clip from the chaos documentary or, or maybe we can revisit the stuff on quantum biology in, in that series two years after that so certainly i'm in discussions with the producer about how it fits together but ultimately you know it's the producer who has to edit it who who understands how it works for for, for television you know the way you tell a story in a documentary it has to sort of ebb and flow it has to have a rhythm to it you can't just bang 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 hit people hard with difficult science you know for 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 two hours certainly in terms of scripting and in terms of uh, how to explain these concepts well that's 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 my my job okay the other day for another podcast somebody asked me to explain time dilation which i thought maybe should they should have got you on instead of me to be honest but the first <laughs> what, what, what sprung uh, to mind was you on a trolley going backwards and forwards with a 
a light ball oh, going up and down. Yes, that, 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 that Cox fellow got me to do that, didn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. This was at the Royal Institution, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which I think it was the science of Doctor Who or something, wasn't it? Which was a lovely, um, mm. a lovely thing. But that's what came to mind when somebody asked me to explain time dilation. And since I was talking to you, I thought, well, what is the most difficult physics to portray on television? Well, something like that particular demonstration is very close to the way we teach relativity theory to students at university. I mean, I, I teach a course on, on relativity to, to first-year undergrads, and it's exactly that idea. It's called the light pulse clock, uh, and it's very early on in the course where you, you show that if the speed of light is the same for all observers, no matter how fast they're moving relative to each other, that's weird. Something has to give. And the light pulse clocks, the idea that, you know, light will travel. For me on the trolley, the light goes up and down. But for the person in the audience watching the trolley moving backwards and forwards, the light follows a sort of <laughs> diagonal lines and therefore covers more distance. Well, how can it cover different distances and yet we still see it moving at the same speed? Therefore, our time is different. So that particular idea is the way we teach it. It just so happens there's a very nice way of portraying it visually for, for, for TV. There are plenty of concepts in, in, in modern physics that are not so straightforward to explain. And, you know, that's, that's the trick of making a good science documentary is being imaginative enough to make use of that medium. You know, if I'm giving a public lecture, I can show PowerPoint slides, I can wave my hands about, I can be very careful in my wording to try and, you know, get inside the head of the audience. But, you know, with TV, you've got that opportunity of, of, of visual effects. Uh, and what I've often tried to do, and I certainly have done in this, in this um, series, is to do as little as possible of CGI, green screen and trickery. I just think it's more, I don't know whether it hits home better, whether, whether it makes the audience understand more. But as much as possible, I'm trying to explain it in words. Okay. That, 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 that's what I do, and that's what I'd like to do better than say, have a look at this very clever graphic of, of you know, how light moves or how quantum particles interact. I'd, I'd much rather say it in words and just use the visuals as a, as a backup just to, to help things along. Mm. But if you're uh, putting together a documentary and in it you're trying to explain the role that the, the, the quantum world has in life, what's on screen? V very often it's not trickery, but sort of loose analogies. Um, in the original documentary I made for BBC, Secrets of the Quantum World, episode two was on quantum biology. And throughout a lot of that episode, I'm pushing a giant red ball around. <laughs> You know what the hell has that got to do with quantum mechanics and life and so on? But we've we, you know we've used that as the that you know that's the theme for that series, and I just use it. It, it. it can describe protons quantum tunneling through solid barriers. It can describe a photon in photosynthesis. Uh, it can describe vibrations of atoms. So you know it's a very loose connection. Um, actually, in, in what the new stuff that we've shot for, 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 this, for the Magellan films and quantum biology is actually much more um, uh, sort of closer to the mark. You know, we have computer generated uh, 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 models of um, DNA and, and protons 
quantum tunneling between two strands of DNA. So it's 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 a, a computer simulation of what is really going on down at the molecular level. So so yeah, we're 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 showing it as it is rather than using any sort of gimmickry mm. there. Okay, okay. So my daughter is a big Casey Musgraves fan, right? And uh, whenever Casey Musgraves, there's a song Casey Musgraves does, which is called something like "Oh, What a World." And my daughter, who's called Lyra, every time it, uh, it it says that, she says, well, that's not quite true. We do know quite a lot about where we came from. Would would we find the answer to that in your programme? I think so. I mean, your daughter's quite right. We we, we do know where we came from. We we, we, we have a, a theory called Darwinian natural selection, which, which we're not really in any doubts about the, 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 the correctness of. You know, we've evolved from, from uh, other... Um, other animals, you know, all the way back, you can follow the tree of life all the way back to single cell organisms. And I mean, the, the, the mystery, if there's a mystery, uh, is not where we came from, uh, but how life first started on Earth. Uh, you know, quant- quantum mechanics may have played a role here. We don't know, but the origin of life. How basically? How do you? How did we get from chemistry to biology? You know, you know, something that is is complex enough that it can make copies of itself. Once that happens, and you've got the first replicator, then evolution kicks in. You know, that just by accident, it'll find better ways and more efficient ways of doing things, and and um, you know, and it'll it'll grow in complexity and evolve. But yeah, I think we 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 try and answer questions like, how did life first start? What what we don't know is whether you know there is life elsewhere. Are we special? That that that's another big mystery that I, science isn't anywhere close to answering yet. You know, do, is the universe teeming with life? Is you know, as provided the conditions are right and the ingredients are there on some other planets in some other system, is life inevitable, or are we really? Is it really so unlikely that we are the lottery winners? We're just that sample of one in an otherwise empty universe. Most scientists don't think that. Most scientists think inevitably, almost, there must be life elsewhere. Even if it's not complex, multicellular, intelligent life, at least single cellular life is, is, uh, should be common. And maybe the, the difficulty is getting from that singular cell, single cell organisms to more complex life that leads to, to us humans. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't give an answer, definitive answer to that question in the program simply because we don't have one yet. Yeah, but you sort of most scientists believe that is on the balance of probability, really, that they think that you think that. Yeah, I it just we've not found any reason why that, given the right ingredients and the sheer number of of, of places where life could have started. Uh, you know, most stars have have planets orbiting them now. You know, a trillion, a trillion galaxies, and and even within our galaxy, there's you know half a trillion stars. If most of them have planets. Then surely there's going to be so many where the conditions are very similar to Earth, and we don't even know how close to the conditions of Earth you need to to be 
to have life. You know, we talk about it has to be in the Goldilocks zone, that it, the temperature has to be right for liquid water to exist because water is such a, a useful thing for life to, to, to evolve in. Well, we don't know for sure. Just maybe we're just not imaginative enough, in which case life could be even more common. It just seems highly unlikely that we are the only place in the universe where life has emerged. So there's uh, research that you're doing at the moment, which is um, about the, the role of quantum mechanics in the, the emergence of life. When, when it comes Tell to quantum mechanics, that. researchers have to be very careful not to oversell what they're doing because quantum mechanics lends itself so easily to, to pseudoscience. Oh, you know, quantum entanglement. Well, that explains telepathy. Yeah. Oh, you know, suddenly quantum mechanics explains consciousness and explains spirituality and so on. So we have to be careful. This new field of quantum biology that I've been involved in for a few years is not really so much looking at the origin of life or whether quantum mechanics explains consciousness. It's We're taking small steps, walking before we can run. So what we're most interested in is whether certain quantum mechanisms like quantum tunneling, a particle jump moving from one place to another uh, uh, when it doesn't have enough energy to do so, like a ball rolling up a hill and rather than getting to the top and rolling down the other side, it sort of tunnels magically its way from one side to the other, like a ghost walking through a wall. This happens in the quantum world. It happens all the time and it's not in any doubt. Physicists and chemists see it all. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for quantum tunneling because the sun wouldn't shine because thermonuclear fusion couldn't take place. Um, but the question then is, does it take place or does it play a role inside living cells? And the answer at the moment, according to our latest research, seems to be yes. For example, we've just got a paper we're just about to publish on the likelihood of protons, hydrogen nuclei, tunneling from one strand of DNA to another. This is exactly what we talk about in the program. So it's very much hot off the press research that is we're, we're sort of looking into now because if a if a proton this is a hydrogen bond it's, it's these are the chemical bonds that hold the strands of dna the two double stranded double helix together if this proton that makes up this bond can jump from one strand of dna to the other via quantum means then that makes it much more likely that a mutation will take place because if the proton's in the wrong place when the two strands separate inside a certain enzyme that splits them up and makes copies of them, then when it makes the the, the, the copy, the, the proton of the of hydrogen bond will be in the wrong place and that will lead to a mutation. So to what extent are the mutations, and we know there are lots of reasons why genetic mutations take place, to what extent are these mutations down to quantum mechanics? And the answer seems to be actually it's much more likely than we thought. So that's an example where quantum mechanics really seems to be playing an important role in the mechanisms of life. Physicists, by and large, have have not looked into this because they don't like biology. No, they don't like. They find biology complicated and messy compared with the sterile, careful, controlled environment of a physics lab where you can tweak dials and turn temperature down and do experiments in a vacuum and so on. You can't do that inside a living cell. Biologists, on the other hand, by and large, won't have studied quantum mechanics, so they, they would rather not be told that quantum mechanics is important. Uh, and, and so, you know, chemists probably sit somewhere in the middle and, and wonder what all the fuss is about, because, of course, all biology is chemistry, and chemistry relies ultimately on the quantum world. Uh, so it's still a tentative new field but it looks like it's leading to some interesting 
new phenomena. And it's not just in DNA mutations, but things like photosynthesis, things like the way some animals are able to sense the Earth's magnetic field for navigation, may play a role in us in, in the way we smell, uh, our um, uh, scent sensors in our noses. So quantum mechanics may appear much more uh, uh, ubiquitous inside living systems than we thought previously. So I, I think when we spoke before, it was about this beautiful thing, Sunfall. Um, which oh, is your, yes, my, my one and only novel. One and only so far <laughs> novel. And um, I, uh, I, when we spoke then, you talked about people getting in touch with you with, well, not your words, my words, crackpot ideas based on quantum physics and various other things. Mm. Do you find that those increase when you put a television program out? Yeah. I don't want to worry you. No, no, okay. ab- absolutely they do. I, you know, I, and I, in fact, that's how I know some of my TV documentaries, well, of course, if they get repeated uh, on the, on mainstream channels like the BBC, I'm not often aware that, you know, on a particular evening at, at 9pm, my, my <laughs> so-and-so documentaries re has a rerun on BBC four. But I find out when the next day I get the, the deluge of emails saying, so I my theory that dark energy is really time flowing backwards into a multiverse through a white hole and in a higher dimension. <laughs> oh, OK, someone's been watching my documentary book. <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, and I, I try sometimes to answer the question. I answer those emails and those queries maybe on, on Twitter uh, as well. Where it's a sensible question, where someone really wants to know something about, you know, how is it that the speed of light, nothing can travel faster than light? You know, who says? You know, so what? What happens if it can? Those sort of questions I will answer, but sometimes they're so wacky and way out. I, I think I really don't know where to start. You know, and and if I if I spent all my time answering all of them, I, you know, I wouldn't have time to do any of the work, my own work. So I tend not to. But yes, the, 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 there's a, a a usual constant trickle of questions that I get usually over email, which sort of builds up quite significantly after one of my programs is aired. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that you're about to release a program then. That's a shame, isn't it? Because you're going to get sick. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll cope somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was wondering, you said uh, it's your one and only novel. Are you going to write another one? I hope so. Um, I mean, I've since the novel written a, a book called The World According to Physics, which is another sort of standard sort of uh, mainstream popular science book. I've got another book coming out early next year called The Joy of Science, which is all about the scientific method and how we do science and how we should really think about applying it to everyday life. You know, here we are living in a world where we're bombarded by information. We don't know what to trust and who to trust. Uh, polarization of views, cognitive dissonance and, 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 and bias and so on. Um, whereas in science, we, we've developed mechanisms to overcome that. You know, we have our own biases, but, you know, we're quite happy to admit we're wrong in the light of new evidence and so on. So, so it's a book about trying to say you know, we could probably lead more sensible, rational lives if we follow the scientific method. Brilliant. So I've got more to say on the non-fiction side, but I can't imagine I wouldn't write another novel. I mean, it may be telling, I'm not sure, but it may be telling that my editor uh, uh, of, of Sunfall hasn't uh, sort of come back banging, knocking down my door saying, Jim, we need your second novel. Where is it? So, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's... Uh, but having had such a steep learning curve, I think, you know, the last time we spoke, I talked about how 
mm. how um, much I had to learn to write fiction and how different mm. writing fiction is from nonfiction. Immersing yourself in an imaginary world, building up your characters, um, painting that picture for the reader. Um, that I can't imagine not using those skills that I've acquired again. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't yet have yeah. that burning storyline that's just waiting to come out. I, I'm sure it'll, it'll come, but, you know, some, some point down the yeah. line. No. I, I hope it does. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed the novel. Oh, thank and, you. Um, and I hope we do get, a, we do get another one. Um, perhaps you'll join us again when you've um, The Joy of Science is out. That would be a pleasure to talk to you about that in more detail. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, let's do that. But I, I wondered, if, given everything that you do, lecturing, research, uh, television programs, books, uh, radio, a very beautiful radio program, Life Scientific, also a podcast, of course. Of course. If somebody, which they're not going to do, but if somebody came to, de- to you today and said, you can only do one of these from now on, I'm afraid, which one would you pick? Oh, that, that's easy. I'd, I'd go back to being a researcher. Um, I'm, first and foremost, what fires me up most and the reason why I, I chose to study physics in the first place is to, because I'm curious about the world, wanting to know answers. And I'm never more excited and engaged and when I'm thinking about new ideas, trying to solve equations, um, trying to understand some some new new result, um, and you know, ten years ago, maybe if you'd asked me, I wouldn't have been so sure because I was very much immersed in in a lot of broadcasting, a lot of science communication, and my academic work was to some extent on the back burner. But in recent years, I'm I'm I've got much more involved in research. In fact, we're just starting. I'm 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 leading on a new, big multi-million pound research project involving half a dozen different universities, looking at, uh, well, quantum biology is one aspect of it, but it's really looking at the the nature, the fa- foundational nature of quantum mechanics, and 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 indeed the arrow of time. So, th- this idea that time has a direction in our macroscopic world. We know that it flows from past to future, but when you get down to the fundamental equations of physics, certainly down at the quantum level, time is reversible. So where does the irreversibility of time emerge? How does it emerge? How does the quantum become our everyday world? Uh, and it's a big research project involving you know 15 different collaborators around the world and lots of students and research. So it's a very exciting time that I'm going to spend probably you know a, a big chunk of my own efforts working on and and uh, you know, immersing myself in. So it might mean the novel is even pushed a bit <sighs> further down the road. <laughs> and, and, and you know, whether I make much more TV. I'm, I'm starting filming a new documentary for, for the BBC uh, next month, another two parts. And filming will be sort of the, the, to in, until the end of this year. Um, and then this new project starts in the new year. So once I get immersed in this research... I'll probably have to take a little step back from my science communication work and my work as a as a public scientist if I really want to get to grips with a new new area of, yeah, of physics. Fair enough. What can you tell me what the BBC programs about? It's called The Large and the Small. So it's uh, it's another one of my two-parters, the this and that up and Brilliant. down, left and right, you know. So I've done sort of order and disorder, everything and nothing, light and dark. Um uh, and uh, so it's looking at the, the biggest and the smallest things that we can see. 
So astrophysics is the, the large and nanoscience is the small. So we're not going down as small as atoms and quarks, but down to the level of what we, we can actually see. Well, atoms, I guess, uh, do count because we can see them in, in electron microscopes. So, yes, yeah, so it's a two-parter looking at the different size scales of our universe. So some stuff I'll have covered before might have to cover it in a different way, but I'm hoping there's going to be lots of new stories and lots of new ways of looking at some of these things. Exciting. Lovely stuff. Well, right now, of course, people can watch um, Jim Al-Khalili's Guide to Life the universe and everything on Magellan TV, uh, which is a streaming service full of documentaries and things. Uh, to be honest, it was the first time I heard of it when I received the email t- telling me that your program was coming on. Um, I suppose that's partly the reason why they've asked you to do mm. it, is to help people discover it. Uh, absolutely. In fact, they do show a number of my uh, previous documentaries uh, that I've made for other platforms like the BBC. Uh, But this is the first one that is a production by Magellan TV themselves. So, I mean, they're quite rightly very proud of it, as am I. Uh, They they haven't just bought something ready-made from somewhere else. They've uh, they've commissioned and funded this this new series. So, yeah, hopefully people enjoy it. I think you have to subscribe to watch this streaming service. But, I mean, this is the way things are going, right? Absolutely. You know, Magellan TV may not be as big as Netflix (laughs) and and Apple TV in terms of budgets, but, you know, this is is the future. Absolutely lovely stuff. Right, well, thank you so much for talking to me again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Andrew. Cheers. My name is Jim Al-Khalili. I'm a professional physicist, and I've been making films about my passionate interest in science for many years. I never cease to be astonished at the awesome power of science in shedding light on everything in the universe, from the tiniest things in existence to extraordinary objects on a cosmological scale. In this series, I want to show you how science gives us insights into the biggest questions of all. How did the universe come into being? How did life start on Earth? And how does it sustain itself? What is the nature of space and time, the very reality we live in? And how will it all end? That's Jim Al-Khalili's Guide to Life, the Universe and Everything on Magellan TV. And if you're wondering where the interview with Rosie Miles, Girl of the Wild, has gone, don't worry, that's coming soon. I hope you and Rosie won't mind Jim stepping in with his series launching today. And thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.